So over the next few Sundays, we were going to conclude this series on the book of Revelation. I did tell you at the beginning, my major goal is that by the end, everyone can pronounce it Revelation, not Revelations, right? I think I did hear Zoe the other day say Revelations. I'm sorry, Zoe, if that's a false accusation. But so, so we're not there yet. Bless. Now we're in a section... In Revelation, where a city referred to as Babylon is being destroyed and judged for its sin. But in Revelation, you often have things being named symbolically. We've seen this throughout the book, haven't we? 666 is the number of a person. Six is one shy of seven. Seven being God's number of perfect completion, the number of the days of God's good creation. So obviously this 666 stands for a person who is directly opposed to God, the opposite of God in nearly every way. That's the idea here with using the name Babylon. Babylon is a stand-in. Babylon was the quintessential anti-God city in the Old Testament. Pagan in their worship, oppressive in their power, using their wealth as a weapon against the weak. They rejected God's beauty and goodness. We're going to talk later about what city Babylon could be referring to, who it's a stand-in for. But first, to, to understand what's going on with Babylon, the way it's being used here, we really need to have an idea of how God looks at cities or communities in general. And we're not talking here just about major metro metropolitan cities. We're talking about any town or community. You know, we're not given to thinking about cities as very important things, spiritually speaking, especially considering the fact that many of us intentionally live outside of a major city. If we do think about cities in a spiritual way, it's usually as anti-spiritual, right? They're uh, gathering places for wickedness, for everything that is evil. But cities are surprisingly important in the Bible. Spiritually important, for good or for ill. And they're so important, in fact, that the bookends of the Bible, as we'll see, are both about cities. The reason that cities are important is for this. They're places of worship. This is where we're going to start. What is a city? In the Bible, a city is a temple. It is a place of worship. Think with me about the bookends of Scripture. The first few chapters of Genesis and the final chapters of Revelation. In Genesis, at the beginning of creation, we have a garden. Or so we are taught to think if it's just a garden. Eden is actually more than a garden. It's not less, but it is more. Did you, did you notice in Genesis 2, the, the passage that Kate read for us, we're told that God planted a garden in Eden. Eden isn't merely a garden. There, a garden goes in Eden, but Eden is actually more than the garden itself. We're also told that a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, Right? It's another small indicator that Eden and the garden are related, but they're separate. They're not the exact same thing. The garden is to become a part of Eden. 
So in the world of the Bible, it was normal to see gardens and cities more connected than we see them today. You know, you never have in the Bible the contrast that we have in the modern world between a city and rural life, as if one is good and the other is bad. The Bible never creates that dichotomy. In fact, the Bible would suggest that these things should be closer together, that a, a city and the agricultural world should coexist in some way. Uh, now, Eden would have been closer to what we see in small towns all over the, va the valley, like here in Elkton. The Napotniks can have a farm that is just on the side of Elkton, the town of Elkton, which you always knew this was like Eden, didn't you, right? All Eltonites always thought that, knew that. So for the people who are reading Genesis in the time of the Old Testament, they would have seen Eden as something like a garden city. There could have been buildings in Eden. But more importantly than all of this, Eden is also a place where God dwells with man. And this makes Eden a temple, a place for worship. Now, here's the question. How can an entire city, a whole community, be a temple? Well, this is a really big point in this creation story. God's original plan for creation was to fill the entire world with his glory, to make the whole creation his temple, his dwelling place. So he puts the man, Adam, in Eden to work it and to keep it. This word for keep means to protect, to guard. And also to spread it, to increase its boundaries. Adam would be an entrepreneur under God's direction, increasing the reign of God through the world. Now, I want you to imagine for a minute that Eden, that life in Eden had continued uninterrupted. Imagine this. What, what would it be like? I think we're supposed to imagine this because this is what the other bookend is going to be like. What would it have been like if Eden had continued uninterrupted? Well, the family of humanity would have increased. The boundaries of Eden would have had to increase to make room for the family of humanity. Most of the jobs that we know of today would still be absolutely necessary to life in Eden. Builders. Teachers, homemakers, innovators, musicians. I, I'm really not sure what to say about lawyers, Scott. I've been trying to figure out how to put this one in. Here's what's remarkable for what we're talking about. All of a person's work done in Eden would be done for God. All work in Eden was holy work. There was no secular sacred divide like you would find in a modern city. Places for religion and then places for no religion. This is how the Bible can view a city, any community of people, as a temple. This is how. Because the Bible's assumption out of the gate is that all our living, our work, family, play, government, all of it is religious. All of it. It's all done in a positive or negative relationship to God. So this is the first bookend of scripture. Eden is a garden city and it's a temple. So at the end of Revelation, the other bookend, we have a city that's being torn down. Babylon. We're going to talk about it shortly. But the new creation descends from heaven to take Babylon's place. And what is the new creation? It's another city. 
but it too is a garden city. So within this new city, the new Jerusalem, the tree of life grows from one side of the river to the other, producing fruit in plenty. Twelve kinds of fruit each month, it says it bears. And this city, too, is obviously a temple. God dwells there, and the nations walk by his light. Again, there is no secular, sacred divide in this city. The rulers of the earth actually bring their best creations into the city, and God receives them to be put on display. If you can now imagine your favorite place to visit in the world, the historical artifacts that you find in that city or that place, the works of art, it's all brought in to the new creation, transformed and perfected by the holy brilliance of God. Works that were formerly made in idolatry for man's own self-glorification. They now serve their true purpose to facilitate worship of the true God, the only God. These are the bookends of scripture. Cities are temples, places for people to work and play and live out their entire lives before God. Now, two quick examples in between the bookends. Babel. Babel was a city built as a temple, but a place for false worship. Jerusalem, of course, the premier temple city. The architecture, though, of the temple in Jerusalem is a symbolic reminder of God's plan in Eden. It always points back. So if you were to go to the temple in Jerusalem, it would have been like going in, uh, to see blueprints on a piece of property that you're going to build a house on. You're looking at the blueprints, but you know one day these blueprints are going to become a thing that fill out this property that you're standing on. If you go to the temple in Jerusalem, the, point of the whole point of the architecture was to remind you that this temple is to take over this city and this world. So if you read in 1 Kings about the architecture, it says that the wood would be carved in the shape of gourds and open flowers, walls that look like trees and pillars with pomegranates on them. The temple was a small version of Eden, a garden city intended to spill out into the world. <clears throat> all right. Now, what do we do with all this? Well, all of this is the background to our passage in Revelation 18. In Revelation 18, we're hearing about the destruction of this city called Babylon. And one of the main ways that this city is described is as a prostitute. This is always fun, isn't it? It's about to get interesting. We ask first, what is a city? The answer from the Bible is a temple is a, a city is a temple. It's a place of worship. It's a place where all of life is lived before God. Now we need to ask this question. What is a harlot city? What is a harlot city? Now, we need to see this. Sex has always been a signpost in God's creation. Adam and Eve are joined together in marriage to point to something much bigger within God's world. And it applies to cities, too. A harlot city is a city that turns evil into good. It turns evil into good. Okay. Remember in Genesis, Adam's job in Eden was to work the garden and keep it, to protect it. 
That should have been important when the snake entered the garden. Adam's job was to protect the garden from such a creature. God also gave Adam a command, eat from any tree in the garden, but do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because the day you eat it, you will surely die. We could stay here a long time. This story has levels and levels of richness to it that I just love to talk about. But here's what I want us to see this morning. An essential part of any community is the discernment between good and evil. The discernment between good and evil. How should we treat each other? What does it mean to treat each other in good ways, economically, in evil ways, economically? How do we make decisions together about how this city functions, this community functions? God expects processes like this to take place over and over again. So he establishes this in Eden. How was Adam to discern between good and evil? God would tell him. This is how he would know the difference. You know, the problem with the prohibited tree, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it's not that God does not want man to know the difference between God and evil, between good and evil, excuse me. Adam already has a notion of this. God said, these trees are good for you. This This one isn't. If you eat from it, you'll die. The warning indicates that death is probably not a good thing, right? Adam is already learning the difference between good and evil, simply by the instructions. Adam, at this point, has what you could call a dependent knowledge of good and evil. The way you will know the difference is you have to learn from someone else. You have to be told. What he does not have is an experiential knowledge of it. He's been protected from that kind of knowledge. So here's an example. I have it on good authority that an affair is a bad thing. Do I need to experience that to be sure? The affair in this case is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I could trust the warning I've been given that eating from that tree is not good for you. Or... I could stubbornly insist on finding out for myself whether that fruit is good. You see what's going on here? Adam knows the difference. He's been told. But he has to be dependent. It's a dependent kind of knowledge. What Adam and Eve pursue is an experiential knowledge. I want to know for myself. It's a stubborn insistence on knowing for oneself. Now, again, what's the point of all this? Here it is. In Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 13, he writes about the job of government. Remember this? And he says that the job of government is essentially to do what Adam was to do, to discern between good and evil, to reward good, and to punish bad. This is what he says the job of government is to do. Reward evil and... uh, Oh my goodness. This This could get sideways real fast. Reward good, punish evil. Now, I don't know about you. I've been in conversations with people on political issues, say uh, abortion. This is just an easy one. Where people will say something like, you cannot legislate morality. Have you heard this? You, You cannot legislate morality. 
And I know this is an easy one. I'm not trying to build a straw man here. There's a major problem with this. Everything the government does, whether it is tax laws, economic regulation, or it's related to abortion, all of it suggests something about what is good and what is evil. Now, no doubt it's complicated. It's not always straightforward as it is in the case of abortion. But laws are never morally neutral. They just cannot be. They orient a culture in a particular direction. This is why God is so intentional with the laws in Israel, to orient them toward justice and mercy. Now, I'm not at all suggesting we need to reestablish Old Testament law. That's a different conversation. But we do need to be aware that laws always have a trajectory. They always point somewhere. They always orient a people somewhere. Now, we can get back to our question. What is a harlot city? Why does God call this city Babylon a prostitute? A harlot city is a city that rewards evil and punishes good. You see, that they, they make an exchange. They get it backwards. They eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they say, no thanks, God. We'll do it our way. Now, there are two specific sins that stand out the most with the city in Revelation 18. One is overconfidence in wealth. Overconfidence in wealth. This city was at the center of what was the ancient world's version of a global market. And they, were one of, they were the wealthiest city and they helped other cities become wealthy. They were trading uh, gold, jewels, ivory, all the most valuable commodities of the ancient world. But the soul of the city was empty. With their wealth gone, they would have nothing. And God is not at all opposed to wealth. In fact, one of the promises he, he gives to Israel is wealth. Wealth is a gift from God to the world, but God is opposed to idolatrous wealth. Consumer wealth. An obsession with newness and stuff for just newness and stuff's sake. Now this is a warning that Americans always need to be conscious of. Wealth can become a weakness. A thriving economy can become a weakness. There's a second sin that stands out, and it's murder. Murder. They kill innocents, especially God's people. Now, here's the way that we identify the city. Who is this Babylon? Chapter 18, verse 24 holds the key. In her was found the blood of prophets and of saints. And who, of all who have been slain in the earth. Jesus said that on one city would come all the righteous blood that had been shed on the earth. Because they had killed prophets and all those who were sent to it. Jerusalem. God's chosen city had become Babylon. Remember, Revelation is written to a church in the first century who is about to face great trials. Now, as we read Revelation, we read it, and we read it within that context, knowing that it is written to, to real people in a real historical context. But we draw on it, and we stand in front of Revelation, and we look out into our world, and we ask, 
what does this book have to say to us? To our world? God's people are always going to have challenges coming. When to be faithful to God sometimes means that people will turn against you. That's what these people are being warned about. These people have begun to kill Christians. Jerusalem, God's people, have begun to kill Christians, begun to murder. How does this kind of a thing happen? This has been in my crawl all week. These were God's people, and they turned completely against him. It's not a hypothetical that's going on here. There's no exaggeration. It's real. As I was reading the gospel to you just a few minutes ago, I just reminded, as I'm reading it, Jesus is warning people. They're standing there listening to him, and he's telling them, you're going to kill the people I send to you. You're going to become just like your fathers. Look, this is always a warning to us. We can't stand here as if uh, we will never become like people who were before us. It's always easy to fall into these habits, these ways, these paths that have been carved out for us. So how does this happen? Well, I think it's good for us to remember what Jesus says when he ratchets up this issue on murder. So Jesus says in Matthew 5, you've been told do not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. What Jesus is indicating for us is that murder is the overflow of anger and hatred. Murder happens when we don't deal rightly with anger. And why does anger happen? Well, anger usually happens because someone steps on our toes, gets in the way of what we want, what we want our life to be. We kill them maybe physically or more often we bury them in our own mind to get them out of our way. But Jesus insists that we deal with the root, the anger itself. Anger in this city turns people into murderers. Now, again, we're standing in front of the book of Revelation and we're asking, what does it mean for our world? Here's a warning I'll put on your radar. America has become an angry nation in many ways. To disagree with someone means to hate them, to be angry at them. It doesn't mean to have a conversation why do you see it your way? Why do you see it yours? It means your enemies. And that often happens on small scales, in small communities, in churches. Our anger just boils over toward each other sometimes just because we disagree. And Jesus says that anger in itself is a problem. What is a city? It's a temple, it's a place of worship. A place to live out all our life before God. Now, what is a harlot city? It is a place that turns good into evil. It's a, a place that praises evil and condemns good. Now, we need to make a final turn. What is a faithful city? What is a faithful city? So in case you've questioned the relevance of all of this for Church of the Lamb, here it comes. The church... 
is a faith, the faithful city. The church is the faithful city. So in chapter 19, we're told that the bride has made herself ready. The harlot city is being replaced by a bride. When the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven, we're told that she is a bride prepared for her husband. This is one metaphor for the church. She's a body with many members. This is what Paul says. She's a bride, but she's also a city on a hill whose light shines for the world. What does this mean? The church is the place where you begin living out God's new creation now. The church is the place, like Eden, where the the sacred and the secular are no longer divided. We live all our lives, corandeo, before the face of God, in service to God. All that you do in your work and in your family and in your friendships, it is for God. All your sleeping and eating, all your weeping and laughing, it's all for God. Now, another piece to this, another way of looking at it. Most cities through history have been built on blood to some degree. This is just reality. The blood of slaves, slave labor, the blood of the conquered. One people had to be removed for another people to establish a life here. The New Jerusalem is built on the blood of the Lamb and the blood of those who follow the Lamb. You see, the way that the church becomes the bride is by following the lamb into his death and then into his resurrection. The church lays its life down for the lamb in love. And then it's raised up to become the bride. Now, one final piece. The church must be a place where good and evil are discerned. Where good is affirmed and is lifted up. And where evil is condemned. This makes it all the more important that the church knows what it looks like to be sexually faithful. For husbands and wives to love one another and be faithful to one another. And in singleness to be faithful in that singleness. Remember that marriage, sex, these are signposts. to something much bigger in God's world. And so the church must be a place that the world can look to. When it needs to know what is good, it can look to the church. It's because the church is living it out. So what is a city? It's this temple. It's the place of worship. What is this harlot city? It is a city that exchanges good and evil, and it rewards evil and punishes good. And then what is a faithful city? It's the church. Living before God and for God. And becoming his bride. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.